what matters most in learning. The challenge, the thrill, the benefits, interacting with other people, or something else entirely. What is the connection between leading and learning? Does change drive learning, or does learning drive change? What's more important, teaching or learning? Is everyone a leader, a learner, a teacher? Want answers? Listen in as we address these intriguing issues through commentary and with guests who share their thinking and tell us their stories. Lead. Learn. Change. Is that I was home educated until I was about nine. And that was still unusual in the UK. And it was even more unusual in the late 80s, early 90s when I was kind of that age. And one of the biggest and most difficult transitions of my life was to go to school because the environment, the rules, I just didn't understand. I found the social things quite hard, you know, although I'm really glad that I went because I, I learned those social things. It's one of the things that undoubtedly the impact of, of school had on me. That when I do things that I'm scared of, that I'm resisting, good things happen. Confidence comes after we take action on things. We, we sometimes think it has to come before, but you know, actually it's always a result of the things we've done. When I think about my favorite teachers, they were usually my favorite teachers. Now, of course, we don't all see the world the same. So this is like the things that I admire. They were mostly funny and they were, they told great stories and they were kind people and they, they had those kinds of qualities too. But um, what they all did for us really was, you know, create a space where we wanted to be there enough that we would pay attention enough that we would learn. If you help someone see something in a new way, you've changed their whole world. Today's guest on Lead, Learn, Change is Robbie Swale. Robbie, thanks for taking your valuable time to be with me today. Oh, well, David, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I'm very grateful. Author, blogger, podcaster, coach, husband, dad, and learner, Robbie Swale spent 12 minutes each way on his frequent train ride between the London Waterloo stop and Clapham Junction. He did a lot of thinking on his journey, reflecting on creativity, resistance, inspiration, commitments, confidence, and the gift of life. These thoughts led to a decision to start writing, and the 12-minute method was born. Robbie and I met via an online writing endeavor, and it was the simplicity of the 12-minute concept that resonated with me and served as a direct catalyst for completing my first book. Today, Robbie shares practical ways to get your idea off the ground, whether that's starting a business, completing a project, serving those around you, or fulfilling a lifelong dream. Let's begin with what matters most in learning. How would you respond to that? Wow, that's actually a really big question. And, and, and I want to say, David, as well, thanks for that beautiful intro. It's really meaningful for me to hear, hear you say that and capture some parts of my story most important about learning look i guess for me what's most important about learning i don't know if this is um if this is the way that people normally answer it but it's 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 that like the idea of learning contains within it that we can learn right contains within it pretty much all of human potential i haven't thought about that until you asked me this question but it's like the sense of possibility in it is what feels really important to me i was speaking to one of my coaching clients today and He'd put himself really out of his comfort zone. He hadn't actually told me, but it was to do with the work we were doing, really out of his comfort zone. And it had not gone fantastically, but it had gone okay. And his real reflection was, well, I'm 40-something, and it's actually a real relief and quite exciting to know that I can still learn new things and grow. And that is, uh, is an amazing thing about learning. And also for me, it's fun. That's, that's one of the things that's important about it. Are you surprised to hear from somebody who's only in their 40s, I say that because that's been a while, <laughs> to hear them say, I'm pleased to discover I can still learn things at 40? Yeah, I am a bit because I, you know, um, learning, curiosity, in some ways the, the times in my life where I felt least fulfilled when I look back were actually times when I wasn't learning. So learning's always been really important. Hmm. In some ways, that, that surprise from, the, from that story about the client, it gives me that sense of, in the work of Carol Dweck, she talks about a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. 
And if you're someone like me, who's kind of feels like I've always had a growth mindset, it's sometimes really important to realize that empathy is really hard. And it's very easy, natural probably, to imagine that everyone else thinks exactly like we do. So even when someone like Carol Dweck, who's a researcher, has got some very well-respected books and work on the idea that we can have a mindset where we think we can learn, the growth mindset, or a fixed one where we don't really believe we can learn and change, despite the respect everyone has for that work, because I've always felt like such a person with a growth mindset, I guess underneath I've always had in some ways a little bit of doubt that actually other really people really with a fixed mindset. And so it's both surprising to, to hear that, yes, there are, and you know, I think this person actually, he knew he could learn, right? We've been learning all the way through the work we've done together over the last year, but to have that really stark event in his life where he remembers, I can still learn and grow and change, that's quite meaningful. I have to ask about your teacher, Mrs. Ramsey. You mentioned her in your first book. I want you to highlight the impact that emerges from the stories that we tell ourselves and then those that we end up conveying to others. So just tell us about Miss Ramsey and touch on any of those components that you'd like. You know, she died a few years ago, um, but there's a, a part of my story that you might not actually know, it might be in the book, I can't remember, is that I was home educated until I was about nine. And that was still unusual in the UK. And it was even more unusual in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was kind of that age. And one of the biggest and most difficult transitions of my life was to go to school. Because the environment, the rules, I just didn't understand. I found the social things quite hard, you know, although I'm really glad that I went because I, I learned those social things. It's one of the things that undoubtedly the impact of, of school had on me. And Mrs. Ramsey, she was one of the two teachers that I had in my first year and a half at school. The top class at this primary school was shared between two teachers, Mrs. Ramsey and Mr. Johnson. And they were both really important figures in my life because they were kind of guiding me into the education system, you know, for, in which I, in the end, thrived and, you know, in, in lots of ways had a wonderful time. And she really, when I look back now, because we'll get to what, what kind of happened, but she was always a bit scary. Like my little sister, when she got into Mrs. Ramsey's class, she really hated Ramsey writing because she had to practice her handwriting with Mrs. Ramsey and Mrs. Ramsey could have a little bit of a kind of like uh, hard side to her. But when I think back to her, mostly I remember her being actually really caring to me. And she must have not really known what to do with me because she would have, I, I'm pretty sure she would have never had to deal with a sensitive boy who hadn't been to school until he was nine coming into her class before, probably or since in her life. And, and she did some of that stuff. She managed me really nicely. And then we have this funny story in my family, which becomes funny later on, which, which you're pointing to, which is my first school report. So it's quite, this is quite an important moment for the family because my parents were feeling the pressure of We've kind of made this decision for Robbie. He doesn't really want to go to school, but for us and the family, and we think for him in the long term, it's a good thing. So the first school report that we got felt like it was quite meaningful for the whole family. That's my mum's reflection when I told her the story, which we'll get to in a sec. But what we remembered until I came to edit a final sweep of my first book, How to Start When You're Stuck. The story was that in my first report, I got a really good report in everything, except in art. So like visual art, painting, that kind of thing, where, where it said something like, Robbie tries hard, but has no real talent. That was the story. And the piece that I wrote in one of the 12-minute sittings, which is in the book as one of the chapters, was how that story, so a lot of us have these stories about creativity, a little, a slightly careless remark from a teacher. This is the story that I'd heard the sociologist Brene Brown tell. A slightly careless remark from a teacher about creativity can have a long-reaching impact. You know, it's one of those things. It's, I'm a parent, uh, as you said, of an 18-month-old, and I'm really seeing at the moment, it's like, there's no way I can get through this time as a parent to Leah without doing some things that in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, she'll wish I had been a bit different about. And that's the kind of responsibility and courage that teachers have to have as well. And Brene Brown says that those stories about creativity can be quite pernicious and stay with us for a long time. So my piece, my chapter in the book was that basically. Mrs. Ramsey gave me the story that I'm not creative. But what happened was the next year I won a, a like a competition across several schools, a painting competition. And it was like, stick it to you, Mrs. Ramsey. I am creative. But in some ways, I feel like I've carried a story that I'm not creative my whole life. And that's kind of laughable these days because I've published two books. I've, you know, I've got like 250 articles on my blog. I used to do theater. I used to do music. I'm obviously a creative person, but I had this story. In the book, that's the story of the article until 
you know, when you're publishing a book and you'll know this, there's a kind of slight pressure to just, or I had, it's just like, just double check some things. Let's make sure I got this quote right. And because I wrote a lot of my book, the first draft on the train with a timer, you know, I didn't check at the time the quotes. So I got my mom. I said, mom, can you dig out that school report from Mrs. Ramsey about art? And she found it. And I don't have the language handy, but it was nothing like what we'd remembered. Both of us had remembered it, my mom and me, really clearly. The actual thing she said was something like, Robbie's art is slightly immature at present, but it'll get better as he practices and experiments, which is pretty much exactly an accurate reflection, I'm sure, of the art that I did. But I had this story, which I carried around for years, and I felt some regret when I found that, because I'd had this story about Mrs. Ramsey, which I'm sure she did say some things that upset me or whatever, because you can't not do that when you're a teacher, I don't think really. But I was, felt really sad that I'd carried around that story for myself and for my memory of her. And just to say, if anyone wants to learn about memory and how accurate it isn't, there's an absolutely amazing, I think it's in season two of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. There's this absolutely amazing two or three part series in there about how our memories don't record. You know, we think of our memory as being a kind of video record of what happened. And it's just nothing like that, which has, you know, incredible consequences for us as humans. It's like when you notice that you, you and your brother or sister have a completely different memory of a Christmas disaster. You know, that's a version of it. But, you know, and I remember hearing that for the first time, I thought, well, what's the implications of this for all our justice systems, which rely so much on eyewitness testimony? And what's the impact for the stories that we carry around for ourselves for decades sometimes about, for example, how creative we are? There's a lot in there. And it is, it was, I was really glad that I did that little check where my mom sent me the thing. And she was like, what she, her reflection was, I can't believe it only says this. I think before I'd even asked, she said, I can't believe it. This is what it says. And she put it down to her, maybe all of us being very sensitive at that time, taking what was written on the page, feeling upset by it because we were worried. And then what happened is our memories created something different to hold the meaning of that story for a long time, which was not an accurate reflection of what happened. A transcript of our conversation today will not be interpreted exactly the same way as a verbatim audio version of the same discussion. And I also mentioned this to my brother just yesterday, I think on a phone call, that you remember something once, and after that, you're remembering a memory. Yeah, And it right. tends to ripple with tiny little incremental changes over time, and it does embed itself in the direction that we're inclined to have it go. Let's toggle over to coaching. It's a major part of your life and your work. To what extent is the purpose of coaching to bring about change? I think, David, 100%. <laughs> like I need to think about that maybe a little bit more carefully. But I think it is always and only really underneath about that. That's one of the things that I think it's true of of psychotherapy as well and other professions you know as well but for coaching it is yeah pretty much always about that it is about I can see something that I want to do or I want to be different and I want some help from somebody to get there and actually that probably works for the broad meaning of the term coaching always you know I want to be better at football I want to be uh, a more expert violin player and in this case when we're talking about leadership coaching or executive coaching or life coaching. It's a set of competencies which help people to create change in their lives, really whatever they're faced with. And so, it, you know, it does start, I think, from that place of like, it's hard to imagine a person signing up. The reason I, I think I'm confident, pretty confident, you can hear not quite in my voice as a thing that, that wouldn't have been picked up on the transcript, right? If I hadn't said that. The reason I'm confident that it's always about change is that it's really hard to imagine someone committing to spend an hour or two every two weeks with somebody and parting with some money if there wasn't something that was going to change for them, if they weren't going to get something. Now, the hesitancy maybe is that it's not always the kind of change that people expect. In my work, it usually does have some outward change. Like it usually does have some project that people are working on, whether that's a relationship or a book or uh, being effective at work and all kinds of other things. But sometimes it, the big changes are internal. That Mrs. Ramsey example, some insight like that can come. And, and that's interesting. My friend Mike Toller, he says, 
the reason he can be confident that coaching changes the world is that if you help someone see something in a new way, you've changed their whole world. So as soon as I've seen that maybe that story about creativity wasn't quite what I thought it was, my whole world might, might suddenly look a little bit different. Certainly parts of it might. All change really happens at the individual level, and it might be magnified or scaled, but it's a person making a change in his or her thinking, and then his or her practices or applications or decisions and that sort of thing. That makes me wonder then, is the best coach primarily a teacher, a leader, or a learner? And that might be a trick question in that you can say yes. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think if we take the term coaching really broadly, like the answer probably is yes. Uh, I think in the kind of coaching that I do, we are always really careful when we're training new coaches or learning to be a coach of the word, of the teaching word. So I think it's possible, partly because we have very, certainly over here in the UK, we have very fixed ideas of, of what a teacher does. You know, i.e. someone, mostly someone at the front of a classroom, essentially delivering a lecture with some work for the class to do. And that's the kind of feel. I know something, I'm the teacher. You don't know that thing. I'm going to tell you, kind of crossing, a, inviting students to cross a knowledge gap and, and no more at the end of the session. And that's not so much what coaching is, although it always includes leadership. I think, you know, it has to, often it's very gentle leadership and people don't, when they're training to be coaches, they don't quite understand it. You know, for example, often the coach is just, is, is simply the leader of the process because the client is almost always, the person receiving the coaching is almost always in charge of what we talk about, what we are doing the work on, what we are trying to change, but the coach is leading the process. And if the coach doesn't lead the process, the coaching won't be as effective. That's as simple as saying, how do you want to use this time? And what do you want to be, what, like, what do you want to change? What do you want to be different at the end of it? And at the end, helping people understand what they're going to do with the learning and new insight they've had. And that's the kind of most basic idea of what a coach might do. And the, the learner question is really interesting. Most coaches love learning. I don't know if that's a causation or correlation. Curiosity is vital for coaching. And most people who are curious, I think, love to learn. And learning a lot helps you, often helps you be a good coach. But I don't know for sure that learning in itself is vital as long as the person is curious. But in a way, it'd be very hard. You couldn't really coach someone without learning about them. Like, and, and if you weren't learning about them, because listening, right, is one of the foundations of a great coach. If you're not learning, like if you're listening properly, you, you are learning. And you have to really. And then look, what I've discovered as my coaching's gone on is I've become, I've been coaching for, professionally for about seven years and I've become, what do you say? Like my intuition for when more directive teaching will be helpful and not has improved so that I am uh, less cautious about occasionally bringing in a framework, you know, having something that I can share um, which sometimes is really useful for the person I'm working with. And sometimes they aren't that interested in. And that's, that's also great. And that's one of the things I think that makes, yeah, that, that I capacity that I've developed is to share a tool, an idea, a framework in real service to the, to the learner, to the client, to the, the person I'm working with. And when it's shared with real service, that's when it feels like it has the most impact. It sounds like some of the qualities or characteristics that you've described about good coaching really would serve good teaching equally well. What about learning then? This is another question from the podcast opener. Does learning drive change or does change drive learning? <laughs> Good question. And, and yeah, just to say, I think many teachers, especially great teachers, if they did a coaching training qualification, they would find that they've been doing it a lot already, you know, because of Anyone who's really committed to helping people learn will discover by trial and error, I think, it's that sometimes questions are more important than knowledge. And I think that's, that's certainly what I found. Yeah, change and learning or learning and change. I think learning definitely drives change. So if you learn, you are changed. And if, if we are changed, if I am changed, then how I am in the world is different. And so the world begins to change. Like once you've learned something, you know, you can't go back, you can't unlearn it and you can forget it in the end. But I, I think that's only forgotten out of the kind of conscious mind. Mostly I think that the things we learn stay in 
a lot of the things we learn stay in our intuitions in our kind of unconscious. And I've definitely seen change drive learning. I think actually, as I'm saying, it, I think that happens a lot. So for example, on some training with some adult developmental psychologists, we used to think that brains stopped developing. I can't remember what it was like age 20 or something like that. And in the end, they realized that's not true. And then there had to be a new field so of, of adult development, thinking about how do adults' brains and perspectives change over their, over their adulthood. And one of the ways I've heard Jennifer Garvey Berger say, the reason that humans' brains are developing is because the world becomes more complex. So we have to, to be able to function in that world. And this has been really tough, I think, in the last couple of years with COVID. We have to essentially change. We have to learn. We have to learn to see greater perspectives. One of my mentors, Robert Holden, he quotes a poem by a woman called Ingrid Goff Madoff. And I'm going to slightly butcher it, but it's something like, God spoke to me in flowers. And I, who was waiting on words, almost missed the conversation. And that makes me think always of, of sometimes in life, like in the end, you know, she was thinking she was going to get an answer from God in words. And in the end, the flowers, you know, there were just so many sim symbols for, this is my, me projecting onto that, so many symbols for her that she had to learn the lesson. That happens with my clients, you know, I've got another client at the moment. We worked together a couple of years ago. We talked a lot about the future of her career. 18 months later, we're working together again. And what's happened is there's the opportunity for her to basically take a redundancy from her company. And only now with this opportunity there, with the world kind of saying, are you sure you don't want to do this thing that you talked about two years ago with Robbie? She said, I'm almost fated now to leave. Like I almost can't avoid it. So the world again for her is asking, okay, so what's been happening? Why haven't you been doing this thing that you've been thinking about? And, you know, what do you need to learn, I guess, in order to do do the thing. Your first book is full of your blog posts. You have one from 2016, so wow, six years ago already. And yeah. it was about the power of creativity. Of course, Mrs. Ramsey's was about that as well. Is there a component of your creative output that you're drawn to the most? Is it coaching or blogging or podcasting or book projects? Which ones really resonate with you the most strongly, even though you're pursuing all of them? Yeah. First of all, I love that you include coaching in that. I think it is a really fundamentally creative thing. And I think most teachers, coaches, a lot of people in a lot of professions don't think of their work as creative. So I love that you said that. And a lot of people, if we think, you know, in some ways we can think of creativity as changing something as well. There's a, there's a way in which creativity is just creating a change. You know, something that didn't exist before I've now written. And, you know, in, in this case, in 2016, so one of the earliest pieces of that writing practice. It's really hard, David. I, I think there is a way in which the answer is coaching. But when I do that, when I sit with somebody for an hour or half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is, and I'm really present with them, and I'm really helping them with something meaningful to them. There's a kind of feeling of flow in that for me that is very powerful. And I almost always, I'm getting it a bit now, actually, David, because you're such a good listener. And I kind of knew I would uh, from this conversation. It's like the time is just going past and we're in connection, even though we're hundreds of thousands of miles apart. And there's something about being in that connection that is very enlivening. Now, having said that, that is true of my writing, but not always. So there are some pieces, you know, I can point to some of them that I remember having that same feeling with and some that I didn't have that same feeling. Some are much more, for example, thinking pieces. Like I thought hard about this thing. Then I wrote something about it. And some of them, they felt like they just flowed out of me, really flowed through me. And that is the feeling I think that excites me about creativity. And, you know, in coaching, when that happens, I love it because sometimes something gets said in the conversation. No one's quite sure who said it, you know, or it emerged between the two people. And we know really, we can look at the recording or whatever and know that I said it or know that the, the other person said it. But when I said it, it didn't feel like my idea because it was so connected to what had just been said. And that's a very exciting and, and powerful feeling. And I get that a little with podcasting. I have a podcast for coaches and been running for getting on three years now. And I'm a little bit with it, a little bit. Uh, so it's tricky, right? Because my second book is how to keep going when you want to give up. And my whole thing, what I've learned about is the power of not, not quitting the meaningful things. With my podcast at the moment, I'm getting a little bit of like, oh, some things do sometimes end and, and that's good. And, and I, I, what I've been thinking about for the last few months really is, I guess, 
hearing it now, it's like, how can I find that creative energy that you're just talking about? And the book projects, now they are scary. And that's a different kind of feeling. And I know I've learned. That's the first lesson of, of my writing practice, 12 minute method, that when I do things that I'm scared of, that I'm resisting, good things happen. And so the book projects are a bit more like that. The kind of process of turning a draft into a book, I did really at any stage find fun, I don't think. Seeing it in people's hands on the other side of the world, incredibly fun. Another phrase in your book that leapt out at me, I had not seen it before, you attribute it to Fred Kaufman, was the phrase impeccable commitments. I want to hear your current view on the importance of solid, accountable commitments. Oh, and before you do that, I just thought of something. It's interesting that you said coaching in response to that last question about creativity, the one that you were drawn to the most, and the distinction, as I see it, is it's the one that's most often most connected to another person. Yeah. It's, it's certainly true for me. That's a really astute thing to say. It's true for a lot of coaches, a lot of people who end up coaching. One of the reasons they've made that move is because they want to see the impact of their work. And certainly one of the reasons I moved into coaching from what I'd done before, which was working in, in charities and nonprofits, I felt like I was a little bit too removed from the, there were some golden things that I helped I make happen, but I wasn't really in them. I wasn't really feel, getting that feeling. And it is very powerful to, to have that. Yeah. So Kaufman is, uh, he's Argentinian. So he, he does have sometimes strange turns of phrase, uh, but he spent a lot of time in, in the US. And for me, there, there are kind of two ways to think about that. Cause I think it is about, it is a very powerful thing to think about in the way we work with others. And there is a sense of which I think a meta competency that really helps people achieve the things they want to achieve in their life is being able to make impeccable commitments to themselves, being able to keep their promises to themselves. With others, uh, you know, we had a partnership with a company. I was delivering some training as part of that partnership. Their responsibility, as far as we understood, was to arrange the venue. And it turned out they'd only arranged a venue for two of the three days. But they hadn't let us know about this. They didn't really apologize for it, for all the extra work it created, for us thinking about how are we going to plan this if we have to move it all online, all those kind of things. And once you've started to see, what is it like? It's better to not make a commitment and to make a commitment, which you later, at a later point, are unable to fulfill. One of the things that Kaufman says in, in a thinking conscious business, it could be in his other book, The Meaning Revolution, a really powerful thing, really, which is, when you can't keep your word, honor your word. That's the kind of impeccable commitment piece. So I will make a commitment that is clear enough that I know if I've kept it or not. That's one part. I will make sure that we both understand that commitment and have the shared understanding of it because there's another place where it falls down. I will only make the commitments if I believe 100% that I will fulfill them. And honor the word is basically at the first possible moment where I realize I am not going to be able to fulfill the commitment. I will let the person know as early as is humanly possible. And I will do what I can to honor my word, even if I can't keep it. So to make amends, if you like. So in the example with the, with the client of mine, they, they could have said, we're really sorry about this. We know it must be creating some extra work for you. They could have said this three months ago, right? Probably. And then they could have said, don't worry about it. We'll make sure we have a venue for you on the day. Now that's looking at what they could have done. The truth is, we have to remember to take responsibility. We in that situation, we hadn't done, I don't think, uh, those, those first two as impeccably as we should. So making the commitment really clear to, each, to both sides and knowing that it's a commitment that's so clear that we'll know if somebody's got it and hasn't. Yeah, I think if we'd reminded, if we'd re-agreed that at a later stage, you know, this is a pattern in my life. You, you know, I get it in my marriage as well. You assume, I assume that once I've said something once a long time ago, Everyone remembers that. We just talked about Mrs. Ramsey, right? That's not the case. So we could have definitely taken responsibility there. So I, I'll maybe pause about that because that's quite a lot in terms of impeccable commitments, or I could talk a little bit more about making commitments to ourselves. Let's segue into something that's probably connected about making commitments to yourself because it's about deciding. You haven't said that word exactly, but it's a huge piece of commitment is making a, making a decision. And it might be, as I read your first book, one of the most pivotal pieces of the 12-minute the method, making a decision. So yeah, we are actually going to talk about the 12-minute method. <laughs> it might seem like we've not focused on it yet, but I think that everything you've said so far fits inside that basic framework. 
or it can be couched inside those 12 minute windows of time. So run with the 12 minute theme in any direction you'd like and take as long as you'd like. No, let's, let's don't do that. Let's make sure you don't talk more than 12 minutes. <laughs> you know, one of the places I might have a bit of creative energy is for a 12 minute method podcast. The great thing about that would be it'd have to be 12 minutes, right? Whereas my podcast That's for coaches a great is, idea. is they're like sprawling long form interviews that are sometimes, I have to book two, I've got one tomorrow morning, I have to book two and a half hours in my calendar with the guests, you know? It's like a real, like they're amazing. I love what I've created and I wouldn't want to, want to have created something different with that podcast, albeit the chapter may end, but I love the 12 minute idea. In some ways, going back to the things that I've created that felt more like coaching, that felt the kind of stuff flowing through me, the piece that I remember that most clearly, I think, was autumn 2016. So it was right after the start of the blog of the practice, was one called Everything Starts with a Decision, which just really felt to me like I'd just seen it in a couple of ways. You know, somebody, Mike, actually, who I mentioned before, he told me a story that he'd read in the paper that someone asked somebody who'd been married a long time, how, how do you stay married so long? And the person said, well, basically, you just decide every day not to get divorced. And then in the end, you know, it'll have been 40 years or whatever it is. And and Steve Pressfield, whose book, The War of Art, was very influential on me. And he'd learned a lot about this, I think, from addiction. How do you decide to turn pro so you're somebody who's going to do their work instead of letting all their procrastination get in the way? And one day you just decide. And that's that was his lesson, I think, personally, but possibly further away than that from 12-step programs as well. It's like, what happens? Well, one day someone decides to get soap. And yeah, and those decisions, they make a lot of impact. And there were kind of two in the 12-minute practice well, maybe, well, there are, there are many, right? Our life, you could look at life as just a series of infinitely small decisions that we're constantly making. Some meaningful ones for me, I'd started coaching and I'd hired a coach, a guy called Joel Monk. I'd had a tricky time at the end of my 20s. My life had kind of got a bit torn up. I'd used that in some ways as some energy to change career and think about what I wanted to do. And here I was starting a new business and I knew I needed to get a coach to support me with that. And I had Joel. And as part of that, here's a decision. We were talking about sharing things online. We were talking about, I felt really scared about that. I felt anxious about it when I thought about, certainly about writing something, creating something. Uh, maybe there was some of that old made up creativity story in there. I, you know, I don't know, but I felt that. Uh, and I decided to tackle it with Joel. Like I didn't want my life to be, to have this kind of feeling of fear in it in that way. You know, and also I knew that really in the long term, if I was going to have a coaching business, have a business of any kind, it would really help me to be less stressed, less perfectionist, less anxious about sharing things I'd made being present on the internet, you know, because this was 2016. So it was a little different to now. Things have moved on in six years, but, you know, it, it was already fundamental by then for almost everybody to, you know, basically had to be operating online if you were a coach. That's what it felt like. I think it's not quite true, but it felt like that. And Joel made a decision to do a little bit like we were saying before, to do a tiny bit of teaching in one of those moments or sharing himself, not quite the pure coaching. We talked about the train journey that you, you said. We talked about that before. I kind of used it, like you said, for thinking, for reading, learning. I think for a little bit of creativity, private creativity. And we talked about that. And we talked about maybe I could use that as a way to write and take the pressure off. And Joel decided to say, do you know what? I, um, I was a visual artist because he used to be a painter. There we go. Interesting echoes, right? I used to like painting series and I knew a little bit. I'd heard other people say that one of the things when you're making something new, it's really useful to commit to doing a few of them, to make a decision to, to do a few of the things. Otherwise you'd be so embarrassed after the first one that you'll stop. But if you've committed to doing five or you've already recorded five podcast episodes before you release the first one, there's that little bit less likely that you give up. So it's a decision to do a series. And then I had another decision. So it, it felt writing those pieces on the train. So it was the practice was get on the train at, at Clapham Junction write while the train's moving, get off at Waterloo and stop writing when the train stops there and then proofread it once and post it online. And, you know, if we think about keeping promises to ourselves, one of the things I didn't really realize at that point was that there were some conditions there that made this a promise that I would be able to keep for nearly six years. Because what happened after that was it didn't feel like fun, I don't think, to like post those early pieces. I had some stress there, had a lot of creative fear, what Steve, Stephen Pressfield would call resistance. But it felt like the right thing. So it's, it's your, your distinction before really about the things you, it's okay to give up on and, and really the thing you should be doing, not in a kind of, you know, dad says you should, but in a kind of something highest saying, this is the thing that you need to be doing right now. And so after that, although it didn't feel nice, it felt good. I decided to, for some reason, I don't really remember 
you know, maybe it was because I'd read a lot of Seth Godin and heard him talk about the power of writing practice. I decided to make it a weekly practice at that point till Christmas, I think. And then at Christmas that year, 2016, I decided to carry it on. I've got about 250 blog posts written in that way now. I should say at some point, the reason 12 minutes came in is at some point I stopped getting the train as much and I, I didn't want to not write on the weeks I didn't get the train. So I checked how long the train journey was and it was 12 minutes that day. And so it became a 12 minute method. So set a timer for 12 minutes, write while it's going, stop when it stops, proofread once, post online. And um, there's now over 250 of those. And what I realized three years in was, I thought it'd be funny. This is about when we met, right? I thought it'd be funny because I could call it, I wrote this book in 12 minutes. That was the first kind of slightly in your face, humorous to me idea. And then what happened was, was really kind of magic. My friend Steve said, well, he was going to edit, help me edit it because he's a professional editor. He said, well, that's a great title. It's kind of in your face. It says, you know, if I can write a book in 12 minutes, you can do your thing, right? But he said, can the book do that? Like, can the content of the book, I wrote this book in 12 minutes, help people with those creative challenges? And what was is still kind of a bit mind boggling to me is that it could. That when I sat down, I printed off, then there's about 130 of these pieces, I think, maybe a, a little less than that. I printed them all off. I thought about the stages of the creative process, the places that people fall down when they try and, and get something off the ground. And I dealt out the pieces and they basically went, almost all of them, into, into these different categories. And, and later we decided that the title didn't quite do as much as another title could. And that actually the book, it was quite, it was like 80,000 words from those first three years and that it might work better as a series so that people could get the help with the bit of the creative process that they wanted help with. And that's why there's a start book, there's a keep going book, and there'll be two more that'll come out later in 2022. And just the last thing to say about it, you know, there's, there's so much I could say about this. Essentially, I followed one of the things Stephen Pressfield says, which is the place where you feel the most resistance is the place that's most important for your soul's evolution. And I had a feeling in 2016 that that was true. That was really, that was one of the reasons I was tackling this thing about sharing things online with Joel. Felt like there was a lot of resistance there, disproportionate amount. And the things that have come, the abundance and the satisfaction that has come from nearly six years of, of writing a piece every week in about 12 minutes, including, for example, this connection that, that we have, you know, is just an incredible thing. And I've transformed and yeah, other people have, have been impacted by it too. You've answered this question indirectly with pieces of multiple responses so far, but I would like to ask you to pull it all together and say what you think makes a teacher a great teacher. Well, it's interesting. What comes up for me in this moment, which I wouldn't have thought about, I don't think, before this conversation, not that it's necessarily come up, is when I think about the great teachers that I had, they mostly just, you know, in their own unique ways and different ways, different ones, they created a space where we wanted to learn and we learned. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's a lot about what I think about, you know, we've been training, training some coaches recently. We've thought a lot about it in that. It's like, how do we create a space where these people can learn? And I recently read a book, an old book called The Inner Game of Tennis. It's a really amazing book. And it's really not just about tennis. It's about everything about learning. And it's one of those times where someone seems to have predicted a lot of research that happened after they wrote the book, a bit like uh, the other one that I always think about is How to Win Friends and Influence People. He wrote, wrote it in the 30s or something. It basically predicts everything they've learned in behavioral sciences. And I've heard of one of the world's leading behavioral scientists say that. And in a game of tennis is really interesting because essentially, in some ways, the whole field of coaching that I work in is based on the inner game of tennis, by the way. I didn't know that. And I, I found it out recently, um, just after I'd read the inner game of tennis. Essentially, the idea is that in tennis, more important than instruction is being able to really notice what's happening in your game and being guided by somebody to just be more and more present with what you're trying to do. You've got to know what you're trying to do, right? You've got to, you've got to watch Federer or something like that, right? So, so that you know what it's supposed to look like when you hit a forehand. But it's really in that book just about helping people notice what's happening for them. You know, we're naturally inclined to learn. You know, I've got a, an 18 month old and you can just see it. No one's instructing her how to walk but, or how to hold things. But today she picks up two flip flops and walks around the two sandals and walks around the, around the flat. And it's like, ah, you know, she didn't used to be able to do that. No one's told her how to do it, but she's watched her mum and me carrying cups of tea or whatever it is. And now she knows. So I guess thinking out loud with you, in this moment, it feels like one of the most important things that makes a great teacher is being able to create space where people can learn 
for themselves often. Of course, I would think that that's coaching, but that happens in weird ways. When I think about my favorite teachers, I think we usually, my favorite teachers, now, of course, we don't all see the world the same. So this is like the things that I admire. They were mostly funny and they were, they told great stories and they were kind people and they, and they had those kinds of qualities too. But um, what they all did for us really was, you know, create a space where we wanted to be there enough that we would pay attention enough that we would learn. Is there one of those teachers that you'd like to mention right now as one of your greatest teachers? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. There are two that come to mind. And what I liked about them both, like I actually learned, like one was a history teacher, one was a maths teacher, but I actually learned a lot about life, like how life works, how to be a human from both of them. Because the history teacher, Mr. Leeming, his teaching technique was basically tell stories for about 45 minutes. And at the end, quickly write some things on the board that we could, we could copy down, you know, so that we had the record that we could go back to about whatever it was he was teaching. But, but the learning, I think probably all happened as he was telling stories in a, in a really beautiful way. And the other one, Mr. Ketchell, he was a maths teacher. It was funny because I had a really, I had a maths teacher that I loved and then he left. And I was like, this is terrible. Like the reason I do maths is because of Mr. Scotthorn. And I did maths as an undergrad, partly because of these two teachers, Mr. Scotthorn and then Mr. Ketchell. And I thought there's no, like, ugh, everything. I was I had three more years at the school. Everything after this is going to be a disappointment. Now Mr. Scotthorn's left. But I learned a lot from Ketch in, in lots of different ways. And this is probably an in-joke that isn't, isn't funny, but he basically had this aff affectation where he would start by saying something and then going, oh, no, it's not, you know, as, as part of the joke. And he said, this morning I'm here to talk to you about BLT. You have BLT in the States? Bacon, lettuce, and tomatoes, a sandwich? Yeah. I, I, sorry, yeah. I just suddenly realized that I don't know if that travels across the Atlantic. Today I'm going to talk to you about BLT. Oh, oh, no, I'm not. And I remember my friend Dean getting that he was going to say it. You know, it's like a, it's almost like a refrain of Mr. Ketchel. I'm going to talk to you about LBT, leatherback turtles. <laughs> I don't even know about the leatherback turtles, but he then told this amazing story that I still remember essentially about how they return to the same beach every year, how swordfish hunting, uh, fishing rather is, was, you know, was in probably 20 years ago now, more than that, 25 years ago was, was really dangerous for them. And everyone in that, in that class learned that, but also I learned that he engaged me with it in a way that was so good that I went to university where I did not have any great teachers. That wasn't what, uh, what the university that I went to specialized in and, and maths got a lot harder. Well, I didn't have someone creating a space that I wanted to be in where I could really learn, telling funny stories and making jokes. And that kind of thing. You've mentioned two more books in your series. You've mentioned toying with an idea of another podcast, 12 minutes in length. Is there anything other than those two things, projects, plans, ideas that you're thinking, eh, this might actually happen? Yeah. It was two things actually. So like, I feel like it's been a long time that these books, like we met in late 2019. At that point, I, I already had the, these four books finished. I thought it was going to be one book, but I had it finished. It's been a long time, quite a painful process and a lot of resistance to get them out. So it does feel in some ways, like one of the thoughts I had for next year is I'll have a really relaxed year where I don't set myself any goals and I'll just see what happens. And that's that. I don't, I don't see you keeping the commitment to not set goals. Uh, we'll see. It's an we'll oxymoronic see. commitment. Yeah. But one of my goals might be, for example, um, create lots of space for just conversations. You know, for example, we haven't spoken for, for quite a while. I, I don't remember if, I don't think that you and I actually have had a situation where we've tried to meet up and, and, and have a conversation and haven't, but that does happen with people. And often it's because someone says, do you want to grab a coffee or a Zoom coffee? And I say, well, I can fit you in in November, you know, essentially, or like, I'm not adding anything more into my diary because I'm trying to get my book done. You know, that kind of answer. And I'd love to have some more flexibility in my life. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about. And I'm wondering in terms of creativity, what that'll create. But what actually came up first when you, when you answered that is that I had this thought about my business. I don't think it was, it was happening when we first met, but it emerged over the last couple of years. And actually there might be three parts of it. So there's the creativity piece. That's what this series of books is about. It's like how to start when you're stuck. How do we do that thing, whether it's a book or a business or whatever. There's the coaching piece, which because you've asked so much about learning, we've talked quite a bit in this conversation. There's also a leadership piece. And for me, in some ways, that's the bit of my coaching. So I do work with coaches and I do work with people on creative projects. And of course, often all these things overlap, but the leadership piece is something I'm really interested in. And one of the ways that I sometimes think about myself and help people think is like, what's the unique contribution that I can make? Like, what is all the experience and training and um, what do you say? Like, uh, just happenstance of my life I mean that I am 
set up to do that a lot of other people aren't. And one of the things that I thought about last year sometime was I have a pretty high level obsession with a fantasy, a British fantasy author called David Gemmell. And I have a website about it called www.wisdomofgemmell.com, which is about the wisdom and philosophy in his work. Because I realized like I'd learned a lot about how to be a man from reading these fantasy novels, like a lot about it. Uh, and about some very meaningful values to me. You know, really a lot of my values, they're, they're present throughout all those books. It's integrity, it's honesty, it's, uh, and it's honor. And so I have this idea that I might do some kind of honor project. I don't really know what it is. It, it might be as explicit as a podcast or something about, you know, thinking really carefully about what does that mean? But it speaks really to that. And I've really seen the power of the impeccable commitments. I've seen the power of words really mattering. So being really careful and precise and honest, telling the truth as well as you can. I've seen that for myself and for others. And all that in some ways is held in that idea of honor. And there aren't many people talking about honor in the world in the 21st century. So I wonder if there'll be a project that's, that's something to do with that. So one of the things that I realized is I don't know that many other people who think about honor. So if anyone's listening or you know anyone who strikes you as a really honorable person or somebody who you know thinks about that idea and how to do it and how to be it in life, then I'd love to be connected to those people because that feels like part of it. It's like, it's like partly it's a research project. It's like, I know how I think about honor in the 21st century, but how do other people think about it? I think you've just crafted the entire project. Take your 12-minute podcast and the question or questions you want answered about honor. Yeah. A single prompt, a single question, let the person talk. What is honor to you? you know, yeah, that is 12... the question, isn't it? What is honor to you? That is exactly it. That's what you want to know. You could actually have a 12-minute podcast about that with as many people as you wanted, and you'd be freed up just to talk to people for a while, which accomplishes your other goal. Yeah, I love that you're saying that. I love your creativity, David. It's Just going back to the thing about the 12-minute method, like one of the things I've been thinking is, you know, one way to keep promises to yourself, to make sure that you can keep promises to yourself is to like we said about impeccable commitments, make one that you know you'll be able to keep. And I don't really know. You, I think you're spotting it. You've heard it in this conversation. I don't know that I can keep a commitment to interview people about honor for two hours at a time. I don't want to make that promise, right? Because flexibility is important to me. But 12 minutes at a time, that I could do, yeah. Are there any parting thoughts that you'd like to close with today? Huh. Can I have two? Sure. Thoughts was plural, as many as you'd like. No more than 12. 12 is <laughs> a magic number for everything today. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, and the funny thing about 12, David, is it was totally arbitrary. I realized that again when I was publishing the book. Mostly the trains from Clapham Junction to Waterloo don't last 12 minutes. Yeah, I've got online to check that out. And yeah. I saw sometimes it's eight minutes yeah. and occasionally 17. And then I was shocked to discover there were literally hundreds a day. It's, yeah. it's nonstop. They used to have a sign at Clapham Junction saying it's the busiest station in the country. So. So when you asked that question, David, I was going to say a thought from the, the first book, but actually then I realized that more meaningful to me at the moment is a thought from the second book. So the thought from the first book is a, a funny story. Again, from this, is, this, this whole podcast in some way feels like it's about me proofreading my book and checking things. I had this funny thing where I had a Stephen Pressfield quote in the front of how to start when you're stuck. I thought I better check that I've got the wording of Pressfield's quote right here. I couldn't find it anywhere. And in the end, I found it. And it was something that I had said. So, so I was able to delete the, and I, you know, I, I doubt that there's any way that I would have put a quote from me on like the first page, but once I thought it was Pressfield, it was there front and center. And then when I realized it wasn't, and I, I just thought I've got to leave this as it is. And that thought was, and it was from Pressfield. It was really influenced by him, but it was my phrasing, my flavor of, of some things that he says in a different way. And that is that our inspiration is always around us, but it's when we make a start that we let it in. So that's, that's thought one. And thought two is the tortoise and the hare thought. And it's essentially this. This is what I've realized from having conversations, but also from publishing that, that second book. Once, once I've seen that if I just sit down for 12 minutes a week, in three years, I can have 80,000 words. And I can accidentally have written four books in this case in that time. And once I've kept that promise to myself, I've made that commitment. And it's not been impeccable, right? There have been weeks when I haven't done it. I didn't do it last week, actually. I was working really hard and I planned to do it on Sunday. And then I got a bit sick on Sunday and I didn't do it. But I know by now that I'll do what you have to do when you, when you have a commitment that you want to keep and you slip. You have to recommit at that stage. Now that I know that I'm someone who can keep a habit going 12 minutes a week for, in this case, nearly six years now. It'll be six years in, in August 2022. 
I really believe in myself that if I make a commitment for the long term, I'll keep it because I got proof of that. Confidence comes after we take action on things. We, we sometimes think it has to come before, but you know, actually it's always a result of the things we've done. And I now know I have confidence, embodied confidence that if I choose to do something every week for 12 minutes, I'll do it. And the interesting thing about that is, especially when we think about a growth mindset, we think about learning that pretty much anything feels possible at that point, as long as the time frame is long enough. Like I would have never guessed that you could write a book 12 minutes a week for three years. It just feels like such a small amount of time. And yet almost without noticing, I had 80,000 words. And of course, we're nearly three years later now. So I actually got another 80,000 words. And I'm wondering, projects for the future, you know, are there another four books in there? I, I don't know. I'll have to find out. But that piece, that if you have a habit, you make a promise to yourself, you keep it for a long time, that possibility really comes in. That feels really important to me. And it's, it's good if it's a creative habit because it gives you so much more. And it's good if the fourth book will be about sharing our work. It's good if you share the stuff because then you're making a difference. And also it's a transformational thing to, to share things we've made. David, I'm afraid I think I went over 12 thoughts there. <laughs> That's quite all right. I think ending with what's next and a new start is really, really fitting. So I just want to thank you for talking with us about ways to frame our objectives, our commitments, so that we can accomplish really anything. There's a lot of thought-provoking material on how to get unstuck, how to get started, and how to make a difference. So I just thank you very much, Robbie. It's been really enjoyable. It's been a real pleasure to think with you in this conversation. I, I feel like I've thought new thoughts and it's been a very alive conversation. So thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today. Find the Lead, Learn, Change podcast on your search engine, iTunes, or other listening app. Leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, and share with others. In the meantime, go lead, go learn, go make a change. Go. Go.